welcome to the Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorca, here today with my good friend, Duncan Ross, who is currently Data and Analytics Director for PES Global. We'll talk about his uh, many interests, which range from uh, data science, data mining, data philanthropy, and even local politics. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Data Show, Duncan. It's good to be here, Ben. So let's start with a little bit of your background to introduce you to our audience here. So MA of Natural Sciences from Cambridge. How did you end up in data? By accident, as all the best people do. Um, Just to give you an idea of how long ago I was at Cambridge, when I was there, they didn't even have a computer science degree. And so I left Cambridge with a a degree in science, not a great degree, but uh, went to work for a small startup who were building neural network software. And initially, I was there to help them write their documentation. Oh, a single layer. Uh, uh, multi-layer perceptron, I'll have oh, you know, and indeed, and indeed <laughs> radial basis functions and cajoning nets. Um, as is often the case, the person who writes the documentation is an ideal candidate to write and deliver training courses. And it's only one step from a training course to consultancy. And oh, so once you start... A, this actually was a product. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, it was it was a fun time to be working uh, on four eight sixes with MEFS coprocessors. So what was could... the uh, what was the application? So it was called um, Good Question. Ooh, casting my mind back, it was um, Recognition Systems was the name of the company. The software was um, is going to have neural in there somewhere. Oh, how embarrassing! Was, the, uh, was it used for marketing? What was the domain? Well, that, that was how the company changed. So initially, it started off with the goal of just producing neural network software that any commercial organization could pick up and use. But gradually, it was clear that most of the users of the product were in marketing. Um, and so the company itself re, well, it pivoted, as we'd say now, and built a CRM, an analytical CRM layer on top of the neural network software. Um, so that became one component of the bigger picture, but still very much with this idea of having data-driven marketing focus on, you know, understanding customer behavior, um, very much along the lines of, you know, the Peppers and Rogers books, you know, the one-to-one marketer and driving that forwards. And that's how I really moved from, you know, a kind of no real understanding of data into playing with it and working with it on a day-by-day basis. So I guess your role as someone who had to go out there and explain the advantages of using the software and how the software works probably... One, got you interested in uh, learning more about how things actually work, but also uh, gave you an appreciation for the impact of some of these tools. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting um, talking to companies who at that stage had often only very limited experience of what data even was and helping them to see what potentially they could do in the future. I mean, the real challenge, of course, was that, as you can imagine at the time, the software didn't necessarily live up to um, the hype. You know, we had high ambitions for what kind of things could be done. But in reality, a lot of the basic things we take for granted now just simply didn't exist or didn't exist in a way that was reasonably accessible to people. So it was a a really interesting grounding in that understanding of potential because, again, it was working, although within marketing, across multiple different industries. You know, when I I, uh, first started working in data, I think, uh, you know, we... There were software like S and S plus and other things like that, and uh, you had this notion of using th- that software, r- maybe li- uh, calling specific libraries from this software or uh, or writing your own because uh, there was a programming language. But uh, 
no one actually talked about pipelines back then, right? So the fact that you actually had to wrangle your data and prepare your data before you got to the uh, uh, most fun part, which was actually maybe only 10% of what you had to do. Well, I mean, certainly we thought about that a lot. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, that was the first time I came across um, uh, CRISP-DM. If you, if you know of CRISP, it's a, uh, it was a um, data mining methodology that was uh, part funded by the European Union. And the idea was to produce a standardized way of approaching um, the concept of dealing with data. Uh, and that was incorporated heavily into uh, the Clementine data mining suite, which oh, was then bought right. up by SPSS and then into IBM, obviously. And if you look at that, yeah, it, it says quite clearly, you know, data preparation. And it was always one of our jokes. We put up the, you know, the crisp DM diagram, which is this wonderful, uh, you know, circle of activities, each of which has roughly the same space on the on the circle. And you say, well, which of these? Where do you think you spend your time? And you're right. Everyone points and says, look, it's analytics. That's what you do all day long. And it's like, well, you know, not exactly. Actually, this is funny because I noticed that uh, in the way you describe yourself, you use things like data mining, advanced analytics. But it seems like you've uh, steered clear of labeling yourself as a data scientist. Well, I, so is it <laughs> kind of an old school kind of guy, data mining? No, it's because I'm occasionally embarrassed to uh, rank myself as a data scientist. Um, I mean, there, there is the old joke, of course, which is that anything that describes itself as a science, by definition, isn't. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't talk about chemistry science or physics science. So uh, there is that. Um, but I think this is this is an interesting side topic, which is the whole thing. What? Do, how do people describe, or how should people describe themselves? And I've tended to go with the flow and said, well, actually, really, the description is there to help other people. You you know what you are. You know what you do. It's people outside who need support in that. And Different uh, terminology is important at different times. Well, so I, yes, I, I have I, to say that uh, when I first started uh, in this uh, space, at the risk of dating myself, uh, the term <laughs> data mining, I think knowledge discovery, those were the buzzy terms. And in many ways, uh, the people who worked in that era, I think they've kind of uh, been forgotten, right? So there was a lot of things that uh, uh, the data mining community uh, contributed to how we get things done now, but uh, some of the youngsters don't seem to uh, remember anything. I, I always get nervous about talking about myself or, or people of my generation and referring to eras because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the aeon when I was young. So, but I know what you mean. I mean, there, there is this huge element of, of reinventing the wheel. And sometimes that's really productive because you actually, if you start with no preconceptions, you may come to a different conclusion and maybe a much better conclusion. The downside is that you can end up with situations where you literally are going through all of those steps that have been gone through before. And it's one of the areas where, um, you know, I, as you know, I worked for Teradata for a long time. Um, we should never discount the experience of the large data warehouse companies. You know, they spent a lot of time and money trying to understand how to make their technologies work beautifully. And a lot of that uh, a lot of those lessons are still relevant today. You know, the whole dis uh, the whole debate about you know um, whereabouts do you do your logical modeling? Do is it logical modeling on uh, design or is it model uh, logical modeling effectively on usage? That's still something that's relevant and important today. By the way, uh, before we get to Teradata, I noticed that uh, when you were at Experian, you set up something called the Strategic Data Council. Describe what that is. 
So uh, Experian is, is a, um, certainly in the UK, is a, it's a very large company, um, but it has four major divisions. And one of their key concerns at the time was this issue of how do you make those four divisions operate as a single organization? Particularly when it came to data, uh, you had very distinctive silos. And because, as you know, Experian works in the um, credit reference space, uh, there are a lot of very good reasons for some of those boundaries to be, be in place. Um, data protection law in Europe generally is uh, a very different uh, creature than it is in the States. And so there were some very good reasons why there has to be boundaries there. But there were some boundaries that were effectively artificial. And so part of the role of the Data Council was um, to actually try and explore some of the ways that that data could be brought together, uh, at least at a conceptual level, to enable us to look at uh, productizing and generating new insight and new value across the whole company. Um, the other thing, of course, was very much from an audit perspective to be able to account for how data came into the organization, how it was used, uh, where it was stored, all these practical things as well. Uh, but my goal, um, I didn't entirely create it, it did exist before, but I certainly transformed its role. Uh, and my, uh, my objective was to transform it purely from being at that audit function. Uh, that we see a lot when you talk to talk about the idea of the, the chief data officer. We often see this coming from an audit perspective. But actually try and turn that on its head into a, uh, a vehicle really for trying to develop new ideas and new data and new insights as well. So in many ways it's kind of like, uh, it, it's, like you said, it's not about audit governance. It's more about just thinking about data holistically across the different divisions. Well, it probably it had to fulfill both roles, um, but absolutely to to emphasize the second part, uh, because uh, and this is this is one of the challenges I think we see in the rise of the chief data officer role is that particularly in Europe, the people who are appointed to that role tend to come from the audit background or from that very much regulatory regulatory framework, and often these roles get created because there has been some data disaster, you know, data has leaked, people have hacked into your database, whatever it might be, and that convinces the C-level people that they need to create a senior role, but then naturally they look for someone whose job is to make sure this never happens again, rather than seeing it as an opportunity to actually transform the business and turn the business into something that's data-focused and data-driven. But the chief, the chief data officer role here in the States, the U.S., I think uh, is, is also uh, becoming more common. But I, right now, my, my guess, and I don't have any stats, is that the it's actually a more common title of people working in the public sector rather than the private sector. Is that the case over there? Yeah, that, that's. I don't think that's the case over here. Certainly, um, uh, my experience with the UK government doesn't suggest that at the moment. Um, uh, it, but I, I think it's also, uh, certainly in, in the UK, it's uh, somewhat of a misnomer because if you look at the actual position that people have within an organisation, Although they have the C in front of their title, they're definitely not board members. Um, they may not even be the layer below that. They're often uh, relatively um, junior executives for the title that they have. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if I was going to say what would be a, a great indicator of the maturity of a market, I would say it would be the importance of that role and the remit of that role. You know, is it just firefighting? In which case, it's it's relatively uninteresting. Is it about transformation? Is it about strategy? Is it about moving the business forward? Then it becomes much much more interesting. Right, right, right. That's I I I am I'm with you with that in terms of uh, 
I'd rather think of it in terms of the more strategic uh, dimension. But uh, shifting over to enterprise software and, and uh, your experience at Teradata, uh, first, I noticed that when you were in Teradata, you embraced the term da data science. In fact, you were the director <laughs> of data science. I uh, was indeed. So at what point uh, did the term data science start leaking into the world of Teradata? Um, I can tell you exactly when it started leaking into my world. Uh, I was uh, at Experian, um, and I saw an advert for a conference that was being held for the first time in Santa Clara, and it seemed quite interesting and moderately related to what I was doing and persuaded my then boss to let me go to it. Um, so I turned up to the first uh, starter conference in Santa Clara. That, by the way, that's an amazing event, rather. <laughs> and <laughs> I've heard good things about it. Um, so I ended up almost by chance at this at the, at the first starter event in, in Santa Clara. And I remember seeing the, um, the jobs board outside the main hall. Uh, and before the first session, it was empty. There was nothing on it. And I just kind of glanced at it, went to the first session, came out in the break, and it was literally full. It was full of adverts. And at that point, I thought, this data thing is really starting to take off. You know, the, the fact that you have a notice board where the most high-tech industry in the country is resorting to pinning bits of paper on a physical board because the job demand is, is so high. Um, and so that's when data science entered my kind of lexicon. In terms of Teradata, uh, we were lucky at the time that we had uh, here in, in Europe, uh, we had a really uh, visionary leadership team who were able to explore the idea of not just selling purely based on the speed of the data warehouse, because you know, they, they would, I'm sure they would say and go on saying that they have the best data warehouse in the world. But if all you're doing is selling because you're the fastest and the biggest, well, frankly, it's, um, it's like selling beans, you know, it's, it's purely a competition on that basis. And if someone spends, and as you know, data warehouse spends can be quite large, but imagine you spend 20, 30, 40 million dollars on a data warehouse. You can spend that money and get nowhere unless you think about how you're going to use the data you're storing. It's just an expensive place to pile data unless you work out how you're going to get it out and how you're going to turn it into commercial advantage. And that's where the data science bit fitted in. You know, could we actually inspire interesting, dynamic uses of data that wouldn't be done otherwise. So did you actually notice a shift in how you folks recruited people? In other words, uh, what kinds of uh, skills you were looking for? Or was it merely just a semantic relabeling? Oh, yeah, we used to call you data analysts. Now we're going to call you data scientists. We used to call you uh, uh, IT ops. Now we're going to call you a data engineer. No, because I, I think, now bear in mind, my team was a fairly specialized team, um, and relatively small in scale. But uh, we, what we were looking for really were people who um, were able to be generalists to a degree. So they had to be able to cope across multiple um, industries. Uh, they had to be, uh, they had to have that feel for data. So there is this... Um, this thing that I'm sure you've seen in, in really great data scientists, that if you show them some data or some, uh, you know, some numbers, that they kind of have a grasp for what meaning they may have or what issues there may be with those. Uh, but they're also not, uh, I think one of the things is they tend to be much more flexible skill-wise, right? Absolutely. So I think, you know, the, this, dis this discussion about the idea of T-shaped profiles is absolutely spot on. You know, people who are able to do everything, even if their specialism might be in one particular area. But I think the other, the other, 
change that happened over that time period as well was actually our willingness to look to recruit great people from places we wouldn't necessarily have looked before. So rather than looking for, you know, the pure um, you know, traditional statistician or traditional um, career line that you might have looked for, uh, computer scientist or whatever, you know, we started looking at um, some of the uh, graduates of the data science courses that we had going around. In fact, one, you know, a couple of people I'll talk about briefly. A fantastic woman we recruited from the University of Dundee who was specializing in proteomics. Uh, which is really the study of, of how proteins fold and how you uh, categorize them. And she had done uh, a master's there and what is, and she still works at Tadic, she's absolutely brilliant. Uh, second person was someone who had gone on, again, University of Dundee's, uh, I shouldn't plug universities because given my current role, but there you go. Um, at the University of Dundee, he had uh, left school uh, and not done a first degree at all and had got into data science through a very roundabout route. He'd just got interested in it and started building his own Hadoop clusters. And then um, he went on to do a master's at, at Dundee, which is where we came across him. But again, a very the kind of route that you wouldn't have conventionally hired from had you been uh, you know, going back 10 years beforehand. Uh, and I think that's, um, that is increasingly is the way you need to look for talent in this marketplace anyway. You know, the, the traditional routes of just saying, let's go for the safe, safe approach aren't viable anymore. We need to cast the net wider. So uh, uh, I guess at Teradata, you actually also had uh, an international perspective because you uh, were responsible for Europe and Asia Pacific. At what point did you start sensing a shift from, okay, I have to explain the, these technologies and these techniques to uh, your customers actually being ready and let's get to it, Duncan. Let's do some implementation, some uh, some uh, brainstorming about how uh, we can use this right right away. Well, our approach, yeah, I mean, our approach was never around selling the techniques themselves. Uh, it was much more around selling the abilities and the concepts. So, you know, uh, and to be honest, the, the very basic stuff around data, you know, why is it important to do stuff with data rather than doing stuff by instinct? You know, that's the first hurdle to get across. Once people but did, have that, did that change over time in terms of uh, as, as, uh, as you stayed longer in Teradata, there became less and less a need for things like that? Uh, to a degree, yes. I think um, there is uh, inevitably a sample bias here because, uh, you know, the, the people who we were talking to are already people who have made the decision that, we should be doing something in data. Otherwise, we would never have ended up talking to them. So th there is a challenge there around sample bias. However, you're right. The uh, you know if you look at uh, over time, even before Teradata, actually, if you start looking at the kind of interactions you are having with senior people in organisations, those have changed quantitatively over time. I remember back in my um, recognition systems days, doing a visit out to AAA California. And I remember uh, talking to them about analytical marketing. And in the room, there was the guy who was the head of marketing, who was a silver-haired uh, gentleman. And right next to him was a 20-something-year-old. And we would spend five minutes talking about something, and the silver-haired guy was nodding wisely. And then he'd stop and kind of look out of the corner of his eye to the young guy, and the young guy would whisper stuff in his ear. And basically, the young guy was there to reassure him that we weren't uh, exaggerating or uh, remembering what a public broad podcast is, that we were you know, telling the truth, that what we said actually meant something. Because the assumption was those days, if you were a senior leader, you knew nothing about data. Increasingly, as time went by, what we saw was that the senior people in the room would at least understand 
that data was a good thing and may even have some understanding about more specific things. Yeah, because uh, I think that uh, I'm always looking for signs that, okay, so maybe now we can stop, not stop, but kind of uh, uh, ease off a little bit and talk about technique and technologies, infrastructure, and let's start talking more about applications. And I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, one, uh, the uh, li uh, line of business users have to understand the uh, the technologies and the techniques to, and what they're capable of, but also I think uh, we need to get to the point where these things are actually much easier to use and deploy. Right? So that's a, a really interesting uh, thing to talk about because oddly enough, if you look over the last um, 30 years, in some ways things have moved on a lot. So there is hugely more flexibility and choice around the software that's available now. Uh, however, in terms of strict usability, you know, if anyone tries to claim that R is as elegant or usable as Clementine, you know, which is what we had back in, you know, the late 90s, you know, it clearly isn't. I mean, Clementine was specifically designed and um, uh, enterprise minor following on from Clementine to allow non-technical people to do data analysis. As we've developed down into the world of Hadoop, and R and Python, etc. In some ways, we've taken a step back because now in order to use those tools effectively or at the most detailed level, you need to have people who have the ability to do some level of programming. And you may say, well, that's actually quite a good thing because those are good skills to have. But then you know, there is this counter-argument that says if we want this truly to be democratized, we want uh, someone who has a marketing focus to be able to pick up this, these technologies and use them effectively, then either we need to simplify the software or we need to find other mechanisms of giving them or, control. Or, uh, add a layer to that stack. And I think that, that people are doing that, right? So they're adding uh, UI tools on top of these technologies, but uh, it's still a stack that you have to deploy from you know, uh, managing your cluster all the way up to the user interface at the top. But uh, Maybe cloud. I think cloud computing will ease a little bit of that, right? So, in terms I think there's certainly that potential, and you know, you're right that the indicators are that you know we're starting to see movement back in that direction. But it's still, uh, you know, uh, again, this is just the way the world is. You know, this move into the world of, of open source software has had some huge advantages. Uh, I mean, the obvious one is that the, you know, I mentioned Clementine and Enterprise Miner. Uh, you know, what are the big challenges with those two software tools? Cost. Right. Number one is cost, um, and you know the the move into open source has hugely lowered that barrier to entry. You know, organisations now who have very limited budgets, you know, uh, charities, not for profits, can now do things in this sector, whereas previously they just would never have been able to afford to. At least not because of the software costs. Um, the downside of that, or the the, the, the counterbalance of that, is increased complexity, either from the end user perspective or in terms of the people who have to manage that stack. The fact that you're talking about a stack at all, um, you know, again, I remember a talk uh, from Strata in London a few years ago and the guy was saying, you know, he spent basically half of, half of his 40 minutes talk was a description of the stack he was using rather than anything about the problem he was trying to solve. Right. Um, speaking of education, as we uh, kind of pivot to your current role, What's the state of training data people in the UK? So in the US, uh, we're starting to see many, many uh, 
programs churning out, not churn, I, I, I guess that's a <laughs> negative term, uh, producing uh, very uh, good data scientists and data engineers. And I think uh, I, would, I would categorize them in three buckets, right? So there's the ones that are uh, kind of the masters, so the, the ones yep. that uh, have the formal degree. And then the ones that are kind of uh, boot camps, and then uh, and then a subset of the boot camps is uh, um, taking really really uh, qualified science and engineering PhDs, and in a short time frame, uh, turning them into data scientists or data engineers. Uh, you and I advise a outfit like that in London called uh, uh, the ASI.co. But uh, are are you starting to see? Uh, master's programs in these topics in the UK? Yeah, and we have for, for a few years now. So as I said, you know, University of Dundee is an example of a, a university that's done very well there. Um, and there are a number of others around. So uh, are companies, around. Are companies uh, recognizing, oh yeah, so, so this, Duncan has a master's in data science. Let's hire Duncan. Sorry, which Duncan? You. No, I don't no, have no, a master's no, just, just, just as an example, I mean, so if someone, oh, right. someone, oh, yes. someone comes yes. to me with a master's <laughs> of data science, is it an equally was, recognizable degree as a master's in computer science? Yeah, I, I was worried that I'd been um, exaggerating, exaggerating on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I, I think, yes, um, you know, uh, at a master's level, that will be recognized. I think um, there is a question about the degree to which that is productive in the jobs market. Right. Um, you know, it's one thing for it to be recognized at a, an academic level. It's another thing for recruiters and uh, employers to sensibly recognize it. Um, so in many ways, Duncan, don't you think uh, uh, it's kind of the same dilemma with the title software engineer? Yes. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Right, right. Uh, but the uh, one of the things we are seeing, though, which does seem to be effective, is that the best of these courses are ones that where the university themselves have recognized that data science isn't actually something that fits wholly within computer science exactly. or mathematics or business, but it's actually a discipline that fits across all, all three of those and possibly other, um, other faculties as well. Uh, because it's that joined up thinking which produces the, the really great candidates out of the end. Yeah, and then I think actually the default is... Uh... In many cases, uh, I'm not saying all, but in many cases, I think the default is, okay, data science, they overload on the algorithms. and Oh, God, science. yeah, that's horrible. I hate, yeah. you know, I, I, love, I love a good algorithm as well as, well as the next man. But um, it, it's, it's always the thing that surprises me and that people spend too much of their time thinking about algorithms rather than the problem they're trying to solve. And normally, if you could, a better definition of the problem is worth far more than a better choice of algorithm. Right, right, right. So your current role as uh, Director of Data and Analytics at TES Global, uh, you're, one of the things you guys produce is a ranking of universities by country and across the world. Is that correct? It's across the world, absolutely. Across the world, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what turns out to be the key factors in this ranking algorithm? I guess, <laughs> I guess you can't give away your secret sauce. It will be like a Google giving out their secrets, right? So. Well, actually, we, we, are, we are pretty public about the approach we take, and it's one that we created in um, 2010, and we've been pretty consistent with it ever since. Um, but it's, uh, it's balanced across a number of factors. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that we only look at the top 
thousand or so universities across the world, and there are twenty three thousand world universities. So we're only looking at about three to four percent of all the universities in the world. The other thing to say about it is that we're looking very much around research focused universities, and there's a simple data reason for that, which is about how do you measure things in different countries,、uh, and. As you might imagine, we have to use data that is directly comparable, and there are many other university missions. For example, the teaching mission, which is really important, but is a nightmare to try and measure as soon as you go across an international boundary.、Uh, I'll give you an, a really clear example of that. Imagine we wanted to rank or evaluate universities by graduation rates, or not sorry, graduation rate, graduate graduate employment rates. The challenge there is that graduate employment rate is affected by the natural unemployment rate where you are. Right. So if you have a university in New York, and what's the New York unemployment rate? Right. I don't know. No, neither do I.、Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let, let's say but it's, it's five. Much lower than、uh, much lower than Athens. Exactly. So how would you compare the output, or even lower than?、Uh, and then you have Singapore, which has an、uh, official unemployment rate of zero percent. So. As soon as you look across international boundaries, you you hit these challenges. So we have to have metrics which are consistent, that have some meaning, and so we look at some measures around teaching, but they are、uh, mostly focused on the input. So、uh, how much resource a university has to put into the teaching mission. We look at some metrics around research, both input to research and also a measure of the output, and then we look at some measures around internationalisation. And industry links. So there's some adjustment factor to account for some countries are richer than others. Yes, absolutely. So we we effectively use a purchase price parity measure. So that allows us to effectively say how many units of the local currency would it take to buy one dollar's worth of stuff. Right. And you'll be pleased to know that the mighty U.S. dollar is the base currency there.、Right. So <laughs> it gives us a way of saying, you know, yes, you're a university in、uh, in Singapore,、um, but your cost basis isn't the same as the university in、uh, California. So、um, of those factors,、uh, I think one of the interesting ones which stands out and we keep coming back to is this idea of internationalisation,、uh, because all of the work that's been done. Suggests that universities that have more of an international outlook are more successful. They have a better learning environment, a better teaching environment, and a better research environment. And there is some evidence around the citations as well. If you do international research collaborations, they tend to have、uh, a better record when you look at the bibliometric data. So this,、uh, this actually, so when you rank, you rank the entire university, not. The disciplines or departments. Yes, we do.、Um, we have a challenge. We're not a government.、Um, if we were a government, we could spend you know millions of dollars doing something like this,、uh, and we could tell the universities to give data to us. Unfortunately, we're not in that position. So we rely on the universities providing data,、uh, and some universities are quite happy to do so, but many. See it as a challenge. You know, this is not a, a big data problem so much as a small data problem. How do I persuade、right. <laughs> institutions to to give even limited sets of data?、Um, But uh, I guess uh, the reason I ask is if you don't do it by discipline, then how do you compare MIT to Juilliard? So、uh, the answer is that although we don't do it by discipline, we do have some、uh, balancing by discipline. So we have、uh, for the last. Uh, ranking. We had six broad subject areas. We asked for data in each of the six areas, and we used that to provide some understanding of the different components. 
but we also have a very um, complex metric which is produced for us by Elsevier, which is called a field-weighted citation impact, which looks at balancing for the different uh, publication and citation traditions that you find in different subjects. So that allows us to account for the fact that uh, in medicine you have far greater number of publication and, and citation than you do, say, in social sciences. So what are the what are kind of the sleeper universities? Obviously, I think, I, I think the elite schools are well known, but what are the sleeper schools, both in terms of ranking, but also in terms of uh, uh, the best bang for your dollar? Well, the, oh, you're back to the American question, the best bang for your dollar. Well, we don't actually look at the cost okay. Uh, okay. Uh, directly in our ranking, partly because uh, the different systems vary hugely from country to country. So you have some countries that have a total open access approach. Anyone can sign up to any university. The downside is they have a very high dropout rate because loads of people sign up, but many people don't even get to the end of the first year. Um, then you have some, universe, uh, some systems like in the US where you have fees that differ by course, by in-state, out-of-state, and so on. So looking at, uh, at the cost is very challenging. However, if I was going to look at for bang for your buck, um, depends on what you want to get out of it. Now, we've done some work on clustering the universities in our uh, data set, which I will talk more about at Strata in London. Um, but we've also started looking at what we call the unsung heroes. So one of the things we measure is uh, we do a uh, global reputation survey. So we go out and we ask academics to nominate the best universities in the world. And this gives us a list which is basically equivalent to brand. So imagine this as the brand of the university. Right, right. We also have a measure on the other end of the actual citations. So this is a measure of the output performance of the research of the university. So the sleeper universities, or one way of thinking about sleeper universities, particularly if, if you're interested in research, is the universities where their citations significantly outperform their reputation. Right. Uh, you know, and um, we're going to uh, identify a few of those in the, in the talk in London. And hopefully there'll be a few surprises there, but it, it is quite interesting. I mean, the obvious thing to say, of course, is that if you're an ancient institution, you have a huge advantage when it comes to reputation. Uh, you know, my old university, Cambridge, still gets credit for Isaac Newton. And as far as I'm aware, he hasn't published <laughs> anything particularly recently. Right, right, right. Um, cool. Um, so let's close by talking about your other passions. And one of them is actually your involvement with a partner of uh, Strata, uh, Datakind. So uh, tell us about uh, what you do uh, for and with Datakind. So again, Strata plays a huge part in this. I went to uh, you know another Strata conference and there was uh, this young New Yorker up on stage talking about how the idea of using data in the not-for-profit sector was you know, the thing we should be doing. And I listened to him, and that was Jake Porway. And I listened to him and thought, this is brilliant. We should be doing this in the UK. Uh, you know, whilst I was um, in my first job, I was also chair of trustees of a national charity, a national uh, not-for-profit. And so you know, this was part of uh, volunteering as part of the thing that I kind of did. Um, and here was Jake talking about this idea of, why don't we take the skills we have around data and use them for not-for-profits? And so um, I got together a group of people in the UK and we basically annoyed Jake and Craig at Datakind until they gave up and said, look, guys, just go away and do something. So we put together uh, Datakind UK 
and we found a way of funding it and we persuaded the UK government to to acknowledge it as a charity. So we are a, uh, a recognised uh, not-for-profit body here in the UK and we're part of the Datakind family. You know, we're, although we are... So uh, just uh, kind of high-level stats, how many people have volunteered for Datakind UK? So I would need to get up the brag sheet to be absolutely correct on this, but we have somewhere in the region of 2,000 volunteers wow. in the book. And uh, when we run events, we regularly get um, between 70 and 120 people who come in and provide their time for a weekend to work with not-for-profits. And uh, the range of skills of the people who come in is, is astounding. You know, we, we don't... You know, we don't segregate. We don't insist that people have a certain level of skill. You know, if you're interested in data, you can participate. Uh, and we have people from, uh, my famous example is uh, Penelope, who turned up one uh, to one event. And we said, well, you know, what? And she was a bit concerned that she didn't have the right skills. So I said, well, you know, what's your background? And she said, I'm an actress. Um, and initial thought was, that's interesting. Um, what does that have to do with data? She'd actually done a, a degree, which was a computer science degree, and then gone into acting, and then decided that actually acting wasn't the quick way to make uh, money that she had initially been told. <laughs> and she wanted to get back involved in data. But she was absolutely brilliant, because she paired up with a, uh, a classical data scientist who was really deep into the algorithms and the analysis. But had a tendency to go down that rabbit hole. And we all know those people. We've all been those people on occasion. Uh, and her role was brilliant. She sat beside this person and basically kept asking him, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? How will that help the project? And bringing that person back to reality helped them both. She learned a whole ton of skills at the event. And he got, uh, you know, he was kept on track and he was hugely productive as a result. So, you know, we have a vast range of skills coming along. And, you know, it can always be said again, you know, the thanks to our volunteers is is immense because they drive what we can do. And a special group of volunteers are data ambassadors. So these are the volunteers who put in time above and beyond. They work with our not-for-profits outside the events so that when we get to the event, the time we have there with our volunteers is as efficient as possible. You know, that we don't get involved in the data wrangling and, and uh, you know, the time-consuming stuff that we can actually get on with helping the not-for-profits to solve the problems that they've brought to us. Um, and finally, to close, uh, you and Francine have been giving these series of talks that have become a staple at uh, Strata in Europe, Using Data for Evil. Now we're in Using Data for Evil Part 4. So is, is uh, knowledge of using Data for Evil Parts 1, 2, and 3 a prerequisite to the upcoming... <laughs> <laughs> I should, sorry, I should have made that a more evil laugh. Ah, 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 ah. Um, not necessarily. I, I think those of you who have been to, to previous years will clearly uh, know the inside jokes. But um, using Data for Evil is our annual roundup of examples of how people have done things badly over the year. Um, and we use this as a way of highlighting what you shouldn't do and hopefully inspiring people instead to do things for good. Uh, we will be updating our, um, our ne necromantic quadrant uh, of evil um, to show which organizations have improved their evilness from previous years. Uh, we'll be looking at particularly great examples of malfeasance with data. And 
I've got to tell you, Ben, I mean, every year I look to write up something for this. And I think, well, maybe this will be the year when people do good. But increasingly, we see the ability for organizations to do just plain evil stuff with data grows every year. Um, By the way, uh, since you've done three of these, have you heard from any people who've gone to the first three and said, hey, by the way, that talk affected the way how we do things in my company? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be a bit worried to hear in case actually they said, no, um, we took on board everything you said. We think we're evil in it. Or, um, or maybe, I guess, to put a positive spin on it, we, did, we, um, we were going down that road and we, your talk made us reconsider what we were doing. <laughs> um, I haven't yet heard that, but what we have definitely had is people who have come to these events, come to come to the um, presentations, and actually use this as the, as the springboard into data philanthropy and actually giving back their time and their commitment into using data for good. I hope we could have a, a wider impact, and that you know maybe we can help turn around that oil tanker of evil heading for the coast. Of, no, that's a horrible metaphor, but you get the idea. Right, right. Um, that would be my dream. Um, you know, given that people like the NSA were on the on the quadrant last year, I've got to be honest, our chances of turning them around are slightly slim. Right, 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 right. By the way, uh, you hinted at this, but uh, how easy is it to put together this list? Is it getting harder or is it actually hasn't changed? It's still much so well, easy to find example. Sadly, it's getting easier. Now, there could, be a, <laughs> <laughs> there could be a positive spin to this, Ben. Let's hope there's a positive spin. The positive spin is that it's getting easier because people are more aware of when data is being misapplied and therefore it's reported more so we have more cases. But actually, I think there is a whole new category of evil that is coming up this year and I hope to be able to talk about that. Uh, well, I will be talking about that at Using Data for Evil for the journey home. All right. Well, this has been great. And uh, uh, we look forward to attending both of your talks at Strata London. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you very much, Ben. You can follow Duncan Ross on Twitter at Duncan Tree Ross. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.